I want to read something to you here. It says, The Seventh-day Adventist message has been received in pieces from hands of a number of men that studied the Bible during the Millerite movement and after. Some don't realize that our church was never founded on the writings of Ellen White. In fact, I don't remember or I can't think of a single doctrine that was discovered uniquely by her. There was this gentleman called Josiah Litch. Some of you may know him. And the day-year principle. Litch had followed in the footsteps of scores of commentators, including William Miller, in his use of the day equals one-year principle. And that's a principle of Bible prophecy. However, he's not the first person that, that, you know, discovered that, but he's the first person to ever make a prediction based on that day-year principle that met a direct fulfillment. And so what happened, he predicted the fall of the Ottoman Empire on August 11, 1840, and the world just wondered and stood amazed. Then there was George Storrs and the doctrine of the state of the dead. Storrs was a Millerite preacher. He published six sermons on the state of the dead. These became the basis for a common Millerite belief in soul sleep in the final destruction of the wicked, meaning as Seventh-day Adventists, this is where we got our concept of when you die, you sleep. Then there's T.M. Premble and the Sabbath. Premble, he published a small track about the Sabbath, and that proved to be a great blessing to somebody called Joseph Bates. And Joseph Bates, when he accepted it, he shared it with two young people. One was called James, and the other one was called Ellen. We know her as Ellen White, and they accepted it. And then it was Enoch Jacobs in the Spirit of Prophecy. Jacobs was the editor of a, a newspaper called the Daystar. In January 24, 1846, he became the first man to publish an account of Miss Ellen Harmon, later White's vision, thus bringing them before the Advent people, eventually the, the world. O.R.L. Crozier in the sanctuary, Crozier, a friend of Hiram Edson. You remember Hiram Edson was, was crossing a field the day after eight, October 22, and he saw this vision of the sanctuary. Well, Crozier, who was a friend of Hiram, was the first man to ever publish an explanation of what actually happened in October 22, 1844. His explanation of the sanctuary formed a pillar in the movement that became the SDA church, and Ellen was shown in vision that that article could be safely recommended to every single saint. Then there was Samuel Snow, Snow sounded the first trumpet of what became the midnight cry of the summer of 1844 and the revival of the seventh month movement. But Premble, who published a track on the Sabbath, he gave up the Sabbath, you know that? And Litch, who was the one that took the day-year principle and applied it to the Ottoman Empire, he gave up the day-year principle. And Jacobs who published the first person to publish Ellen White, he became a spiritualist. Crozier, who published a sanctuary, gave up the sanctuary doctrine. And Storrs became a false prophet, and Snow left the Advent movement altogether. And time doesn't allow for me to talk about Belden and Wagner and Jones and a score of others like Canwright. What happened? You know, the other day, I had a chance to go back to Quebec where I grew up. And Quebec is, a, is an interesting place. You know, it's, it's, it's French, it's also English, and, but it's tough because it's, it's like 80, 90% Catholic. 
Caucasian Catholic, French Canadians, and they're really tough to break through. Now, my generation, they're very atheist. And so I'm asking questions. Some of you may have this kind of experience. You're asking questions going back to your past, and you're asking, well, what happened to so-and-so? Well, so-and-so doesn't come to church anymore. But what about this brother? What happened to him? Well, he doesn't believe in God. He's an atheist now. What about this girl? Oh, she's actually working in a bar. And you're thinking, what? One after another after another, gone. Atheists don't... And I'm trying to... And, you know, and, and, and I'm thinking about this, and I remember this one guy, how, how he stood up, and he talked about how, how he lost his job because he started to stay true to the Sabbath. And what God did is that God took him and gave him a better job. And I actually remember him standing up and talking and giving this testimony. And I remember another guy preaching and my heart being touched. And I remember another one, that if that gentleman, his life hadn't changed, my life would never have been changed. And I see the same gentleman drinking beer and saying, you know what, this is this God business, whatever, it doesn't. And I remember going in the shower and just crying and saying, Lord, is my experience real too? I mean, am I fake? These people, some of them that, that, that were chains and, and linked to bring me to God, and, and, and these people were more spiritual than me, and some, many of them are smarter than me, and these people turned away from you, and, and what about me? Is my experience real? And if it is, is there hope for me? Because I don't have half the IQ of these people, and some of these people, I don't have half the spirituality that they had. How come they left? What will keep me from leaving? And I ask the same question for you. Sometimes we think that, you know what, these things will never happen to me. I know what I believe, and I know, and I know people that knew what they believed. And they're gone. And when I say gone, I remember there was one girl. She came to our canvassing program. And the next thing I knew, she is gone. She shacked up with her boyfriend, and is just gone, gone, gone. And I'm thinking... It's like a matter of 30 days. And you know, in that program, she was saying how she wants to give her life to God, how, how, how she wants to become a missionary. And tonight I want to talk to you about the conscience. Romans 12 verse 2 talks to us about be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we need our minds to be transformed. You know that the frontal lobe, the, the mind, we are told, is the only means by which heaven communicates to us. Did you know that? And so, you know, heaven communicates to us through our minds. And so it is very important for us to understand how our mind, and especially how our conscience works. Because that is what God uses, our frontal lobe, to reach us. So if you have your Bibles with me, we're going to look at a few verses. I'm going to move quickly, so I want you to stay with me because I have a lot to cover and I don't want to take too much time. So we're going to look at John chapter 8. What verse did I say? John chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 7 and verse 7 to 9. John chapter 8, verse 7 to 9, it says, so, when, so, so the, the, the context is that you have individuals that are dragging this woman who was caught in adultery and they throw her at the feet of Jesus and... Um, and then they ask him, you know, what should we do? Should we kill her? Should we not? They're trying to trap Jesus. And so verse 7 says, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. Because they're asking, Jesus, what am I supposed to do with this woman? 
And he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own what? Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Who made the statement, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone? Who made that statement? Jesus made that statement, right? So who was the one that was writing in the sand their sins? But who convicted them? Contextually, what does it say? It says their what? It was their conscience. It was their conscience. The conscience is an interesting thing. It helps to discern between right and wrong. And it does that by bringing conviction, especially when we do wrong. So my question to you is, who created the conscience? God. God created the conscience. Are you sure? Conscience is part of who we are, right? It's a body, mind, spirit. Conscience is part of our mind. So God gave us a conscience, right? The question is, which person of the Godhead uses the conscience as one of the means to communicate with us? The Holy Spirit. Very good. So, is the conscience a good thing or a bad thing? It's a, it's a good thing, right? It is given to us by God. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the conscience. But the question is now, can you always trust your conscience? So, it's a good thing. And it's given to us by God. Can I trust my conscience, though? Who says yes? Who says no? You guys speak English? <laughs> Who doesn't know? <laughs> if, t turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 15 and 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says here, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And that is so true. Sometimes when you go and speak with friends in the world and you just say something and their minds are so crooked that everything that you say goes down to, to you know, the bottomless pit. But anyways, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is what? Is defiled. So here we see that your conscience can be what? Defiled. It says they profess that they know God. So these are not just worldling or people that are atheists or agnostics. These are actually individuals that believe in God, that say that they trust or believe in God, but their consciences are defiled. It says they profess that they know God, but in works they denying, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So the conscience can be defiled. So if the conscience can be defiled, can I trust my conscience? Who says yes? Who says no? Who doesn't speak English? <laughs> In mind, character, and personality, it says, the idea is entertained by many that a man may practice anything that he conscientiously believes to be right. But the question is, has the man a well-instructed good conscience, or is it biased and warped by his own preconceived opinions? Conscience is not to take the place of thus saith the Lord. 
Consciences do not all harmonize, are not, are not all inspired alike. Some consciences, you know, are, are, are defiled. Men may be conscientiously wrong as well as conscientiously what? Right, right? It is not enough for a man to think himself safe in following the dictates of his conscience. This is in Higher Calling 143. The question to be settled is, is the question, is the conscience in harmony with the Word of God? If not, it cannot safely be followed, for it will deceive. The conscience must be enlightened by God and, and so forth. So, Conscience is in the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is the only means by which heaven communicates with us. And why do I take time to share this with you? Because there's this idea that says, look, even within Adventism, I follow my convictions. I mean, I'm convicted to do a certain thing. And I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian, and we're both trying to follow God, and I'm convicted to do this because my conscience tells me this is right. And you are convicted to do that because your conscience tells you that this is right. But both of the ways that we have contradict each other, right? And, and we both can't be right. Because think about it. If, if I really believe, conscientiously believe, that I can get to Europe by car, I don't care how sincere, I don't care how convicted I may be, it just is not going to happen, right? Because if you want to get to Europe, you got to fly or you got to take a boat, right? So you have Mrs. Smith over here, and Mrs. Smith is a good Catholic, and, and she missed Mass today. And so Mrs. Smith, she feels so bad. She feels convicted by what? By God or by her conscience? Did God tell us we need to go to Mass on Sunday? Did God tell us we need to go to Mass, period? No. But her conscience convicts her, and she feels extremely bad. Why? Because she missed Mass this morning. And then you have Mr. Uh, Brown, let's call him. And Mr. Brown, he feels bad because he slept in Sabbath morning, and he missed church service. Did God ask us to go and worship him on Sabbath? Right. So both of them, their conscience convicts them. And then you have Sally Jane, call her Sally, whatever. Sally Jane doesn't feel bad on Sunday and doesn't feel bad on, on Sabbath either. She doesn't even believe in God. So her, you know, when she sleeps in on Sunday or on Monday or on Tuesday, her conscience doesn't bother her at all because she's, she's happy-go-lucky. She doesn't even believe that God exists, right? So one is convicted, one is convicted, one is not. They can't all be right. And even though they may all be sincere, and they all rely on their consciences for peace. This is very important, friends. They all rely on their consciences to appease their conscience so they can have peace. You know, I know people that their consciences is their God. Are you with me? And that's not, you know, I'm not saying that you should necessarily go against your conscience. But I know individuals that they would rather, <laughs> they, they, it's like they are a slave to their conscience, but their consciences are not educated by God's word nor enlightened by his spirit. Are you with me, right? So 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going somewhere. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 4 looking at verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, 
Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a what? With a hot iron. Do you know what seared means? You know, if you have cattle, I don't know if they still do that, but in Alberta, you know, you have cattle. And so what they would used to do anyways, they would have like, my name is Zeta, so I would have a big Z on a, on a, on a stick, and they would, uh, they, would, they would heat that Z, right, really hot, and then, psh, you know, they would put on the side of the cattle and, and burn, and, and it would become a scar. And so forever, that cow would have a Z on them. You guys say Z here, right? It's all right, anyways. You guys, it would have a Z on there that says this cattle belongs to Jonathan, right? And I don't know if you've ever burned your hand or really seriously burned. What happens is when something is seared, when something is burned, what happens to the sensitivity to it? It's gone. It's gone, right? So there's an interesting concept is that as we depart from the faith, what happens is, as you depart from the faith, as you start listening to teachings and doctrines that are not in harmony with God's will, something starts happening to your conscience. It starts to become desensitized. It starts to become seared, to get to the point where you touch and you don't feel it anymore. You don't feel it anymore. So it says, as we depart, to be made numb, or in other words, our conscience become desensitized. Here in Review and Herald 1901, September 3, it says, but one says, my conscience doesn't condemn me in not keeping this particular commandment, because some people say, you know, if, if, if it was really bad, I would feel bad when I do this thing, but you know what, I don't feel bad at all, so my conscience doesn't condemn me, right? But in the Word of God, we read that there are good and bad consciences. And the fact that your conscience does not condemn you in not keeping the law of God does not prove that you are uncondemned in His sight. Are you with me? Not only do our consciences become desensitized, but there comes a point where when we fully cannot trust our conscience anymore. And the sad thing is that when that point arrives, we don't even realize it. John 16, verse 1 and 2. In John chapter 16, I'm looking at verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, These things have I spoken unto you. Jesus is speaking, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whoever killeth you will think that he doeth God a service. So there will come a point in time where there will be a group of individuals that will kill God's faithful people. But the interesting thing is these individuals will actually believe. It's not that, oh man, I don't really like killing this person, but I'm going to kill anyways. Oh, I feel so bad that I kill. No, they will actually be killing you. And they're thinking, praise the Lord. We finally were able to rid and help God and, and praise God. And their conscience is actually telling them that this is the right thing to do. In the last days, there was gonna, there's going to be two groups. There's going to be one group that has their consciences that are educated by their emotions, their feelings, by media, by TV, internet, by their pastors, church leaders, popular teachings, in the world in general. So their, their consciences has been educated in one way. And then there's going to be another group 
their consciences were educated by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Two groups. In their minds, both are actually doing God's will. Both are sincere. And both, when they fulfill God's will, do not feel guilty about doing it. In volume two of the testimony, page 90, it says, a conscience once violated is greatly weakened. It needs the strength of constant watchfulness and unceasing prayer. In manuscript release 27, 1900, it says, he who after hearing the truth turns from it because to accept it would retard his success in business lines, turns from God and the light. He sells his soul in a cheap market. His conscience will ever be unreliable. So what this is telling us is that if you are violating one principle over here, and you have other principles that you're keeping, you know, you're, you're returning, keeping the Sabbath and whatever, but let's just say that you, you cheat on your taxes, right? So what's happening, you're violating this principle because you are trying, you know, to, 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 to your thinking is going to impede your progress. What it's saying is that your conscience will not be reliable anymore. And you're thinking, no, that's impossible. I mean, I, and I still feel guilty about certain things. Watch what we're going to read here a little bit later. You know, when I was younger, um, something that, that really helped me to see this is um, when I was, was born, my dad never, never bought a television, never had a TV in our home. He was a, a pastor. And, you know, some of you may remember back in the days, you know, television was devil vision. You know, it was some of us maybe a little too young for that. But, you know, in the, even in the, the 60s and 70s when the... It, TV was a bad thing, and there's many Adventists that didn't have it, you know, but after a while, you know, you start getting it, and so I grew up not having TV when I was very small, but then when I was about six years old, dad decided, you know, he's going to buy a TV because dad really liked to watch the news. He thought, you know, that was important, so, so he bought this little black and white TV, you know, that had the little thing and the little things, and, um, and so, but, but he, we didn't put it in the middle of the living room, what he would do is that he would pull it out maybe once a week or something and, or twice a week to watch the news for an hour and he might let us watch a little program and then you, you would wrap the cord around and then you'd have to put the TV and then he'd go and put the TV away somewhere. And, you know, us kids, we're four kids at home. I'm, 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 I'm child number three. And so, you know, of course, kids, they want to watch cartoons and they want, you know, we want TV is, 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 the, is, the, is the way to go. It's the life. So what would happen is whenever mom and dad would leave, we would go and find the television and we would watch television until mom and dad would come back. And we were blessed or cursed, I don't know, dad had a diesel, uh, a, a golf, and so we could hear the car coming from quite a ways. You know, we'd open the windows and listen carefully. And so I think dad caught on because what would happen is whenever they would leave, the TV would be in a, in a different place. And so as soon as he's gone, it's like, okay, we're going to get the TV. So I should go here and ever we're, we're looking for the TV. We find the television and then we, we, we put the TV out and then we start watching the television. And we may watch for an hour, two, three. And then when we hear the diesel's here, quick guys. And we go into operation, <laughs> wrap the cord and everything, put the TV back, everything good. Okay, open your Bible as if you're reading and somebody's sweeping the floor, just looking completely innocent. I don't know if dad ever caught on to what we were doing. You'd think that maybe he would touch the TV to see if it was hot, because it was pretty hot by the time we were done listening to it. But as I watched television, I realized I was brought through different stages. Different stages. My conscience. You know, at first, I can remember whenever 
we first watch and we see violence or immorality, you know, the reaction is to turn the television off. You know, it's just that, that reaction that it's, it's, it's wrong. You know, and even if at first, first, you know, it's so bad, you turn it off and, 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 and you put the TV away. You're already doing something wrong. You're not supposed to be watching TV in the first place. And now you're watching this filth and, you know, you turn it and you put it away. But the more you watch, you know, what happens is when you see that stuff, you don't turn it off anymore. You, 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 you turn your head the other way. And I remember as a kid, I would, I would have enough sense to know I'm not supposed to see this. And so I turn my head and I kind of wait till the guy finished getting shot or whatever. And then I go back and I watch some more. And then step number three. It gets to the point where you're watching it and you're indifferent to it. The guy's getting shot 26 times and you're just watching. So it went from disgust to turning off to turning your face to watching it. And friends, the last stage, you know, it's, 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 it's scary. It's not scary when you're in it because you don't see it, but it's scary when you're out of it and you're seeing the guy being punched. Yeah, punch him. Come on, you can do it. You, and you're, and, am I the only one that experienced this? <laughs> that you're in it and you want the guy because he's a bad guy and you need to get him and punch him and punch him and, and you don't even realize what you're, what you're doing. So it went from total disgust to the point where you are screaming and shouting and you can't wait for the guy to die. You find pleasure. Pleasure in people that are being shot. Pleasure in seeing immorality. And you know, my dad was very strict when we were growing up. West Indian, you know, he would use the belt on us. And, uh, but it's very interesting how one day while I was watching, I don't know how, but I just imagined Jesus. And you know, it's interesting how my dad being very strict, you would think that Jesus would be like, what are you doing here? And, and the vision that I would see of Jesus would be, you know, I'm going to beat you or whatever. But I didn't see none of that. I didn't even see Jesus screaming at me or was like, man, here you go again. The only thing I saw in my mind's eye was Christ looking at me not a single word, and just silently, just tears streaming down his face. And you're like looking at this stuff, and you see this vision in your mind. No screaming, no yelling, no beating, just tears. And you know, I start to realize, what, what am I doing? What has my conscience become? Maybe to you it's something else. I don't know. For some people it's the Sabbath. They work on the Sabbath one time. You know, especially in the winter. I don't know if it's here, but in Canada in the winter, the sun sets early. So you work one time and you feel so guilty. And so maybe even some people, they feel guilty. And so whatever money they earn on Sabbath hours, they turn it in. <laughs> Just into the offering plate, trying to relieve their conscience, Right? as if to atone for their sin. But I'm telling you, the more that you work on Sabbath, it comes to the point that, you know, you know, I ask forgiveness, and God knows I need to do what I need to do. Maybe some of you, it's lying. And the first time you, you really lied to somebody, 
You couldn't even sleep that night. But then you told yourself, you know, tomorrow I'm going to make it right. But tomorrow comes and it takes courage and so you don't do it. And the days turn to weeks and the weeks turn to months and the months turn to years. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to be able to tell somebody that you lied to them and your conscience is violated. Maybe it's treating somebody bad. You treat mean. Maybe your parents, your siblings, I don't know, your pastor, your co-worker, you treat him bad. And at first you feel bad that you treat him bad, but then, you know, after a while you kind of ignore the guilt and, and you try to justify yourself in your mind, and then after a while it gets to the point where you find pleasure in treating someone bad. And you tell yourself, you know, after all, he treat me bad and he deserves worse. Maybe it's in a relationship that you're in that you shouldn't be in. And you know, the Lord says, can two walk together unless they agree? I know, I know, I know. And maybe it's something that you're doing in that relationship that God is saying, wait a second. This is only for marriage, by the way, just to let you know. And when you first do it, you feel so bad, you feel so filthy, you feel so dirty. But the more you do it, the more your conscience becomes desensitized. And it gets to the point where you say, well, I don't know. I, I, I need this thing. And I'm telling you, friends, it's not that God cannot forgive you. Of course God can forgive you. But you know the greatest fear is that you'll get to the point where you won't want forgiveness. Are you with me? Because your conscience is so desensitized that it's, it's like it's not a big deal. What's the big deal? You know, I need this thing. I need this, and therefore I do it. For some people, it's sexual temptations on TV or Internet. And friends, porn is one of the most addictive, but it's one of the most desensitizing thing on your conscience. It affects your spiritual growth. And for some women, you know, it may not be porn. It may be novels, sitcoms, all kinds of stuff, TV series. Uh, but they're both. They might still be. It's pure, tr it's pure trash. It's filth, you know. And if you're honest with yourself, it's trash for your conscience. There's nothing there to purify, elevate you towards God. And you know, maybe you used to feel guilty, but now it's just like, Lord, please forgive me. And Lord, help me not to do that tomorrow. But tomorrow comes and we do it again. And then Lord, you know, please forgive me. And then help me not to do it. And tomorrow comes and then we do it again. And God forbid that we start justifying ourselves and stop asking for forgiveness and start saying, well, you know, it helps me to deal with the stress in my life. You know, I have a lot of stress. I've been through a lot in my childhood. This is the only way that I can deal with stress. And so what happens is when you stop asking for forgiveness and you, stop, you start justifying it, what can God do for you? And somebody says, well, I'm single. My spouse maybe doesn't give me the attention I deserve. Or I don't do this as often as he does. I know some pastor that does this thing. I'm not as bad as they. And friends, when we violate our conscience, we violate our conscience, we violate our conscience, we violate our conscience until it becomes so unreliable that Satan then moves in and makes you feel guilty for things that are not sinful and makes you feel nothing for things that are sinful. Are you with me? You may think that, oh, if I violate my conscience, I'm not going to be feel guilty for nothing. No, sir. No, ma'am. What happens is when you violate your conscience over and over again, Satan moves in. 
And then there's little things like the Pharisees, and they were counting their little herbs and their, their, their mint, and they feel guilty if they haven't really, you know, tithed their mint, but yet they can go out and not feel guilty and kill the Son of God. Are you with me? So Satan moves in and starts playing with you and playing with me. The Pharisees also, I don't know if you remember, Judas threw 30 pieces of silver at the, t and you know, he says, I've killed innocent blood. And so the Pharisees' conscience wouldn't allow them to take the 30 pieces and put it back in the treasury because it was blood money. And so they say, no, 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 we can't do that. So they took the 30 pieces and they bought a land so they can bury strangers, but yet they can crucify God. This quote shook me to the core. 5T, page 512, says, God's voice will be recognized if we do not separate our souls from him by walking in our own ways, doing according to our own wills, and following the promptings of an unsanctified heart until the senses or the conscience have become so confused that eternal things are not discerned and the voice of Satan is so disguised that it is accepted as the voice of God. Can you believe that? And so it's not about if you are spiritual or not. It's not about if you have an IQ or not. It's not even if you have some amazing experience or if you have been a Bible worker or a pastor or not. What's happening is if you continue to follow the unselfish promptings of your heart, there comes a point where your conscience is so desensitized that Satan moves in. And when you hear Satan talking, you think it's God. And when you hear God talking, you think it's Satan. In Child Guidance, we're told, page 538, a large class of the professed Christian world are watching their feelings. But feeling is an unsafe guide, and those who depend upon it are in danger of imbibing heresy. Satan can move upon our feelings, and he can so arrange surrounding circumstances as to make our feelings changeable. Do you know that Satan has access to our feelings? And that's why we can't always trust our feelings. Well, in Revelation chapter 3, if you can turn there quickly with me, in Revelation chapter 3, this is the Laodicean church, we can see here verse 16 and verse 17 in the context of the conscience. So then, Jesus says, because... Revelation 3, verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, Christ is saying and making it clear to the Laodicean church that, Laodicea, your conscience is no good. Your conscience is messed up. You are blind, and it's not... It's not that you know it and are acting like someone who can see. No, you don't even realize that you are blind. God here in Revelation is doing something similar to, to a mother that is taking maybe her two-year-old child that is blind, and for the first time, the, the mother is, is, is sitting her child on her knees and is telling the child, look, Mary, you know you're blind. And that means that you're, you're different than mommy and daddy. Mary would ask, well, mommy, what is it, what is blind? Well, well Mary, blind means that you, you cannot see. Well, well, mommy, what does it mean to see?
And mommy needs to try to explain to Mary what it means to see. If Mary was born blind, that's exactly what God is trying to do here. It's not that we are, are blind and we know it. We are blind and we don't know it. And God comes and says, listen, I need to explain to you something. You think you are okay, but you are blind and can't see. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, there's a story of a blind man. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, the Bible tells us, And they came to Jericho. And as he, Jesus, went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. As Bartimaeus was blind physically and desired to see, we are blind spiritually, and we should seek to do the same thing that blind Bartimaeus did. The story of blind Bartimaeus tells me, Jonathan, cry, and don't stop crying out to God. You know, I cry to Jesus, have mercy on me, not because I can see how sinful I am, but because I cannot see it. I cry, Jesus, have mercy on me, not because I feel guilty when I sin. I cry for him to have mercy on me because I don't experience the guilt and remorse I used to have. Are you with me? I cry, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me because I'm tired of being spiritually blind and not being able to appreciate spiritual things. Maybe for you there was a time when some of us would cry after committing certain sins. Or some of us could hear a sermon and it would move something in our hearts. But now we can hear the sermon and it does nothing to us. It would move us to tears. It would resonate a chord. And sometimes when temptation would come, we would shrink from it. But now we run to temptation. And we can sin without feeling guilty because our consciences are desensitized. We can come to church Sabbath after Sabbath, and all we can do is criticize the pastor. We don't forgive. We're filled with pride. We are depressed, discouraged, overwhelmed. So cry. Cry. Friends, I've been doing this in my life. And it's amazing that when you cry to God, it's amazing what God will do for you. We need to cry, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Why? Why does the Laodicean church need to cry out? Because many within are lost from the depth of our hearts. We know that something is not quite right. Our consciences have been desensitized. We are lost but we don't really care. Are you with me? Some of us, we know that something is not quite right. As Mary, the little girl, she kind of knows something's not quite right. And if we were to take time to look inside, we will realize that we are in a lost condition. Why? because we're violating our conscience, we're committing these sins, but our consciences are not convicting us anymore. We kind of think we're okay, but somehow we, don't, we, don't, we think we're okay because we still feel guilty on certain things. It's just other things we just don't feel guilty, but... And if we really, really cared, we would spend that time with God. 
we would prioritize with him. We would spend time in his word. We are told that the pioneers sometimes would spend two or three hours on their knees every morning, and they wouldn't get up until they had the assurance that Christ would be with them that day. And they had that peace, and they held on to his hand. But we get up, and we rush, and we go. And if we have time for God, we'll take it a little bit. But, and we wonder why we have no power. And we wonder why we commit the same things. And we wonder why we are continually addicted to certain things. So cry, Jesus, Jesus, thou son of David, please have mercy on me. And friends, I believe that the most powerful words in the Bible is found in verse 49. It says, and Jesus stood still. And Jesus stood still. Friends, you know, Jesus stood still, and then he called Bartimaeus to cross. There were thousands of people that day with Jesus. Thousands of people around Jesus, and he's walking, and he's being bustled. And, but Jesus only stood still for one man that day. One man. When that one soul realized there was something wrong and started crying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And people are telling him, be quiet, you're being annoying, just shut up. And he says, uh-uh. And he kept crying and crying and crying. And the Bible tells us that Jesus stood still. I don't know what's going on in heaven. I suppose Jesus is pretty busy. I mean, there's prayers of millions of Christians and probably millions of atheists too when they get in trouble. And he has to sustain the planets and he has to keep the, the grass growing and, and provide food for the birds. And, and God is probably very busy. And there's the judgment on top of that that's going on in heaven. And I don't know how it all works and there's billions of angels and there's other worlds. But I like to think that when one sinner gets down on his or her knees and realizes that they've lost sensitivity to their conscience. They get down on their knees and they cry from the bottom of their heart. And they say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I like to think that Jesus in all his busyness and all the judgment, he said, whoa, stop. Hold the books, stop. I like to think that Christ stands still for you and for me. What a wonderful God we serve. You know, what a patient and loving God. The reason our consciences have been desensitized is not something we do only against ourselves. We do it against Christ. But what a patient God to continue to bear with us. And when we finally cry out, he doesn't say, finally you come to me. You know, I've been waiting. No. <laughs> Christ stands still. And, and he reaches down to us and shows us the mercy shows us the mercy. Well, what if my conscience is messed up? Is there hope for me? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. The Bible tells us, Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Hebrews 9, 14, 914, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, 
purge or cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So what the Bible is saying is that God can wash and cleanse our consciences, and the way that he does it is through his word. As we cry out to him, God, through his spirit, uses word to bring back sensitivity to our conscience. Isn't that amazing? that even though we violated our conscience time and time again, that God can bring back sensitivity. In Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, page 323, it says, your conscience has been abused and has become hardened. But if you will follow the right course, renewed sensitiveness will come to it. Isn't that wonderful? It also tells us here in, uh, in uh, 2T, it says time must be given to a study of the scriptures and to prayer thus the mind will be established strengthened and settled and this is in the context of the conscience this is the context of the conscience some of you may be thinking well what's the point of the conscience if i can't trust it what's the point the conscience is one of god's most precious gift when it works and i I add, when it works. Once there is a total surrender to Christ, and once the conscience starts to get educated by the Word of God, the Spirit brings back the sensitivity. And I'm telling you, friends, then it's the greatest blessing to be continually in tune with God, or as much as possible. And when you feel guilty, you're supposed to feel guilty. And when you don't feel guilty, you're not supposed to. Are you with me? It says, God does not say in Christ's oblique lesson, ask once and you shall receive. He bids us ask, unwearingly persist in prayer. We're talking about crying out to God. The persistent asking brings the petitioner into a more earnest attitude and gives him an increased desire to receive the things for which he asked for. I don't know where you're at this evening in your walk with God. Maybe some of you have relied on your conscience and thought, well, you know, it's true I commit this sin over and over, and it's true I don't feel guilty, but then I feel guilty on this, so. God wants to renew our minds. God wants to give us consciences that are in tune with God's Holy Spirit. And I don't know where you're at today, but I want you to think outside of you and start thinking about Jesus. Start thinking about what he is enduring each day for you. Start thinking about how much he loves us. You know, the Bible tells us that even when there was a, there was a plan that if sin would come in, the Father, the Son, they knew exactly what they had to do. But we are told in the pen of inspiration, when sin actually happened, the Son went into the Father and the meeting there lasted for a long time. And the people were thinking, the angels were thinking, what's happening? Because the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Because there was already a plan that was going to happen. But this pen of inspiration tells us that even though the father knew and the son knew what had to happen, it was still very difficult for the father to say, yes, I will let you go. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine? God knew the future. God knew, you know, that Jesus would come, that he would die and everything. He knew everything that's going to happen. But you got God the Father and you got God the Son. And, 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 and it's like, they sin. Yeah, I know. They sin. You, you know what needs to happen. Yeah, I, need, I, I know what needs to happen. But man, I, I, I just can't let you go. And you, I don't know how it all works in heaven. But there had to be a time before Christ came down to become incarnate. There had to be the time when there was God's Father's last word to His Son. There had to be a time when there was one last hug. And there was, had to be a time where He said, you know, I'm here. You know, if you need me, you can always come. And I know, Father. You know, you know, I'm only a prayer away. I know, Father. But there had to be a time where the Father had to release His Son and had to let Jesus come down here. And friends, you know, I have a son. And I would, you know, if, if I had to let my son go and, and, you know, he'd be in a better place than where I am, you know, I'd be sad to let him go, but I'd say, good on you, you know, go out there, make a difference. Or if it was a place that was just kind of as good as me, but if I knew that the moment my son gets out of that door, he's going to get shot, I would never let my son go. But friends, Christ let go. And friends, how selfish of us to say, no, I can't give my heart to God. No, I want to keep doing my thing. And Christ is saying, Wait, but, but, but I gave my son for you. And, 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 and every day, I'm just pleading with you. Won't you just get to the point to surrender everything to me? No, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I have my life to live, and, and you know, I have things I want to do, and, and I love what I'm doing with my girlfriend, and I, and I love my music. And I... Friends, maybe you don't see, maybe you don't see what is wrong with what you're doing. And so my cry to us this morning is that we may make the decision for the next month, every day, to cry to God, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. When I started to do that, God started to show me how bad I am, praise the Lord, <laughs> how much I needed a Savior. And you may say, well, I don't feel the need. That's why you need to cry. Because, well, you're blind. I'm blind. We can't see. And so we cry, Lord, I'm crying to you not because I know I'm bad. I don't even realize how bad I am. Have mercy on me. And please, Father, get me to the point where I can care about you, about your feelings, about your purpose, to the point where I can surrender everything. And so I'm not asking you necessarily to make that choice now if this is something you're struggling with. But the only thing I'm asking you to do for the next 30 days, every morning, every night, cry out to God to have mercy upon you. And I'm telling you, God will take you where you're at. Amen? If that is your desire, if you really commit to this, and I, you know, if you don't, it's okay. You know, you won't hurt my feelings. I'm a coal porter. I get slammed doors. It's okay, you know? But if you want to do this thing, stand with me, and let's ask God to help us. Amen? And for those also, I don't know, you know, this is GYC West, probably everybody is fully consecrated and everything. 
But if there's somebody here, and if maybe you can bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me, but if there's somebody here that sense the call from God to finally surrender all, and that individual has not surrendered all before, and maybe tonight you've realized how maybe you've been depending on your conscience to try to figure things with life, and now you're realizing that your conscience is not fully reliable and it's not predictable because you haven't been surrendered. But maybe tonight you've caught something about the goodness and the mercy of God. And you've caught a glimpse of how much God truly loves you. And you want to say, Jonathan, I want Jesus to stand still for me. I want to surrender my life to God fully. And I've never done it before, but I want to do it now. And there's no pressure. God's not going to hate you if you don't do it. But friends, imagine the peace and joy that you can have if you do it. And you know, if that person is you, I want you to raise your hand in the sight of heaven that God may look down from his throne and stand still for you. Praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord, sister. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you see your children here today. And Lord, I'm just a sinner like them. We all are in need of your grace. But Father, we come to you not because we are spiritual, not because we understand everything, not because we actually feel guilty at times, when we, but we come to you because because our consciences are messed up. Our consciences are desensitized. And we don't even realize how bad we are. The only reason we're standing is because in your revelation, you said we are messed up. And even though we don't fully see it, we come to you and we, as a body of believers, cry out to you, Father, and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon us. And give us our eyesight, Father, back. And Lord, some of us here are committing to be able to pray every day for you to have that mercy to continually open our eyes more and more to spiritual things so that we can have a deeper appreciation for what is spiritual, so that our consciences become so sensitive that if you just whisper, we move. Oh, Father, we desire that union with you, that oneness that you want to have with us. And so I plead, Father, help us to fulfill our commitment to cry to you. And as your people cry, I pray that you will hear and you will reveal yourself to them. And Father, tonight I also pray for those that are raising their hand. And Lord, they want to surrender it all to you for the first time. And Lord... I don't know what this means. I don't know what in their lives that they need to, to give to you. You know, they know. And so I pray that as they commit to spend time in your word, and if some of them need to be baptized, need to take that step, I pray you may help them to lead them to their pastor. They can start taking the process to have that, that wonderful marriage experience with you. 
I plead, Lord, have mercy upon them. And Lord, may this be a start of something great. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness and for your patience. Continue to give us your Holy Spirit to guide us in the path of righteousness and to give us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.